Support for the show comes from Kohler. Smart lights, smart refrigerators, smart locks. The list of smart gadgets meant to make life more convenient grows longer and longer every day. But what about smart things that are also beautiful things? Luxurious, even. Meet the Numi 2.0, Kohler's smartest toilet yet. The Numi 2.0 is a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with unmatched sculptural design. More than a toilet, it's a work of art. Make your bathroom the smartest, cleanest, and most comfortable room in your home with Kohler. Learn more at Kohler.com. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Hello, Welcome to the first cast. cast. Wait, you no, mother- you're, st- oh, you're starting. You're, so I was going to start You just told me I'm you. supposed to run the show, Neelai. All right, David's running the show. No, you do good. it. No, run the show. Welcome to the Vergecast, the flagship podcast of AlaskaCommons.com and World-Today-News.com and other fake websites made by fake people. I'm your friend David Pierce. <laughs> Neelai Patel is here and not in charge. I'm in a full clerk's zone. Like, I'm not even supposed to be here today. You're supposed to be on a mountain somewhere. I was supposed to be at the Aspen Ideas Festival doing a panel about AI with our friend Joanna Stern, and all the flights from the East Coast were canceled due to the storm. So now I'm here with you, which I'm very happy about. Zero percent prepared. So David's going to run the show. That's the way we like you. Alex Kranz is here. Hi, Alex. Hi, I'm 5% prepared. I read about AI this week. AI is a thing. It's, it's happening. All. Welcome to the first cast, where AI is a thing. We have a lot to talk about this week. There's uh, the FTC versus Microsoft going on right now as we do this. Satya Nadella is on the stand, which is why we're recording this with Neelai, and then Neelai has to go away and be on a different mountain somewhere. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that uh, after he's gone with Addy Robertson and Tom Warren. We have a bunch of gadgety, Apple-y, lightning round stuff to do. But let's start with AI. There was a like grab bag of AI stuff going on this week on the site, and I feel like we should talk about all of it. Starting with this big survey that we did that I knew nothing about. It just sort of dropped on the site at some point <laughs> and was totally fascinating. What did you guys make of this survey? This survey both surprised me and did not surprise me at all in ways I thought was really interesting. But the idea was like, let's go out and talk to regular humans about how they feel about AI and how they're using it and what they think. Neil, I jumped out to you. The background here, the color, is that Vox Media has a big research and insights team. They run around collecting data and doing surveys like this, uh, usually on behalf of marketers, like they, they're on that side of the house from us. But every now and again, we collaborate. So for many years, we did surveys about how people feel about big tech and sort of that big tech regulatory moment. And we were going to do it again this year. And we thought, oh, AI is way more interesting. Like, we should ask people how they feel about AI. So we went and got this, like, 2,000-person sample of American adults we did it sort of early this year, like after the AI boom. And to me, there's two things that really jump out. One, people are utterly convinced that it's going to have a big impact. And there's a really funny chart in here that compares AI to EVs to NFTs, like all these buzzwords that people have heard about. And it's like 74% of people think AI will have a big impact on society. 69% of people think EVs will have a big impact on society. And it's like 
34% of people think NFTs will have a big impact on society. Which feels high, if I'm honest. It just seems high. very high. <laughs> That's just the entire staff of Andreessen Horowitz took the survey. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it's a representative sample. And I think that makes sense. Like, it, it does seem high, but it's just letters people recognize at this point. So, like, yeah, like, one in three people hit yes. Fine. Like, who knows why they did it, but it makes sense. The thing that jumps out is... People can see the impact from AI. You don't have to convince them. They see the tools working and doing things, and they're using them, which is the other takeaway. And then the last one is you look at what they're familiar with, like Adobe Firefly is on the list. And that, you know, that's not like the hottest one, but it's that's because of social media. People are seeing it being used in Photoshop. They're seeing it being used in all these tools. And so the social media filter effect is so powerful where everyone sees the best things AI can do because people are posting on social media, or they're, they're posting Photoshop clips on social media or whatever. That's really interesting to me. Like the technology is proving itself to people just by showing it working in a way that NFTs proved nothing to no one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think the thing that I kept noticing going through this is there was this chart right at the top about like basically which of these AI things have you heard of? And ChatGPT is at the top. 57% said they've either used it or heard of it. 43% said, what is that? And ChatGPT is high, then Bing, My AI from Snap and Bard. And then way down below, you get things like Midjourney and Stable Diffusion, yep. which is, it's a really interesting divide because you have these like chatbots that are are like characters and people use them and are aware of them and sort of interact with them and like understand what they are as products. All the image stuff seems like it is just being sort of commoditized and hidden incredibly quickly. And like you said, all this stuff is going to live in the tools that we use to make images, not build new platforms. Whereas all the chatbot stuff is like trying to build new platforms. They're all doing plugins. They like want to be the next big thing. Whereas the image generation stuff is just like, maybe this just becomes underlying tech really fast and nobody ever cares what Midjourney is. I think the other part of that was that Midjourney and all of those, those were a little more, I don't want to say they were mature, but we've been talking about them a lot more and been impressed by them and like been impressed and been like, yeah, that's cool. And continued on our ways with the image stuff a lot longer than we've been with the the, the generative, the chat generative stuff, right? Like that was, that was the big deal this year. So I don't think I'm surprised that like the thing that was on 60 Minutes multiple times this year had a much bigger like <laughs> impact in people's minds than mid-journey even though mid-journey is really really cool and doing really cool stuff the thing that i think is super interesting about that and i completely agree with you alex is is it once more impressive for the computer to generate an image and it's also easier to have an opinion about it so it's like i can't do anything in photoshop but I can tell Photoshop to do something and then be like, that sucks. <laughs> and everyone's okay with that flow. And then people look at like walls of text being generated, which they can definitely do on their own. And they're like, that is the most impressive thing I've ever seen. I can't do it. And there's, there's something in there. There's a, there's a PhD thesis in there about like how we evaluate things we can make versus things we can't make. And it's just so funny to me that people can look at an image and be like, that sucks with no ability to create it. I do it all the time and they can look at text, which they could probably edit. And they're like, that is the most, that's it's alive. You know why it is though. It's because people really suck at writing, but they think they're really good at writing, but people <laughs> really suck at art, 
but they know they really <laughs> suck at art. Like everybody's very self-aware that they're bad at yeah. art, but most people are like, I'm a good writer. And then you edit them and you're like, mm. this is definitely three editors on a podcast now. It's like, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is courtesy of my mom sent me something to copy the other day. No. <laughs> like, but, you should use the robot mom. My mom is an amazing writer. I have no idea what her writing looks like. Look, I've had drinks with Alex's mom. Yeah, you did. I would read whatever she wrote. One person on this podcast will read what my mom wrote. <laughs> Uh, I think what shocked me about this survey was that 76% of people were like, we should outlaw using AI to make deep fakes of people's faces without their consent. That was, I was like, does nobody know what parody is? Oh, yeah. Every time we do regulatory questions on surveys like this, like, it's kind of amazing how the knee-jerk answer is like, you should control it. (laughs) Destroy it. And that, to some extent, that's the answer. We should probably find a way to outlaw deep fake like bad faith deep fakes of other people we have a story that has been burbling along in our evergreen search results for a while and it's james vincent wrote about a tool that was it was an app on on the windows store for like a minute that could generate deep fake nudes of women and so like the keywords in the headline are like deep like app to make deep fake nudes of women and like, it's about how the thing went up and it's a problem. And then it came down, like, whatever, like that's the story. But the keywords in the headline are such that people keep finding it in search. And it scares me every time I see it come up the charts. And I'm like, that's the, I don't know how to do it. Like there's a million reasons that it's hard to do, but I think everybody instinctively knows that maybe there should be consequences for that or you shouldn't do it. It's just so, it's so visceral in a way a lot of the things that we talk about with tech regulation aren't. Like disinformation is this like very hard concept to get your head around in a lot of ways. Uh, even even things like harassment can be hard to sort of look at from afar and understand what it is and what makes it up. Deep fake nudes is like the single easiest thing to understand that could possibly exist. But yeah, I, I was struck by the same thing, Alex. All of the questions about how should we regulate AI, ironically, they were all between 76 and 78% of people for the most part, yeah. which definitely means there's just like 500 people in this who are just like, anti-regulation maniacs <laughs> who just like instinctively hit no yeah. on every single five percent like, of no. people just read the fountainhead yeah. <laughs> and that's just the way it goes yeah but I, I yeah i thought that was really interesting and this idea that overwhelmingly people thought that artists should be compensated when ai copies their work it's like people intellectually grok what is right and wrong here in a way that i thought was really interesting and the there was less debate on some of that stuff among the survey respondents than I expected. You say that, but 64% of people are not opposed to corporations creating conscious AI. And that terrifies me a little bit. Seems like 64% of people have never seen science fiction. Or they have. Actually, the more terrifying idea is that they've definitely seen it. And they're like, 69% of people have seen Ex Machina. And they're like, he could bang the robots. (laughs) Well, that's like the it's it's all the Ready Player One stuff. Everybody's like, oh, I could put on a headset and play games with my friends. And then everyone is just like gesturing broadly, being like, what about the downfall of civilization? <laughs> and it's like, I think you missed the broader point here, y'all. But Alex, what about the the 56 percent of people who said they thought people will develop emotional relationships with AI and 35% of people who just straight up said they'd be fine with that and would do it themselves if they were feeling that made sense to me. I feel like that number is way underreported. 35% feels very low. 
Yeah, it was like one third of people would be like, yeah, I'd have inappropriate conversations with a chatbot. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Kevin Roos already did it. No. I, uh, if only we could like had the control set of people, like people who had not seen the front page of the New York Times and people who had. <laughs> did our friend Kevin alter the course of world history by being like the robot tried to do me? <laughs> he and Spike Jones were like, was it Spike Jones that directed her? Yeah. yeah. He and Spike Jones, they were like, yeah, bang the robot. It's fine. Yeah. Another movie that I think a lot of people may have missed the big broader point of. It <laughs> yeah. was like that movie was like beautiful and had warm colors. And everybody's like, this seems great. Uh, I'm not sure they they should watch that movie again. They're ready for the robots to come back on their rocket ship and, <laughs> yeah. and hang out. <laughs> so, OK, so more more AI news. The other study that came out this week was not one that we did. But did you guys look through this study about the the AI generated tweets? Yes, that was terrifying. No, again, ho- horribly unprepared. Okay, so Alex, you, you explain the basic thrust of this. Okay, so a bunch of researchers at the Institute of Biomedical Ethics and History of Medicine at the University of Zurich, not a very large name, got together and they basically gave a bunch of people on Facebook tweets, some of which were real and some of which were rewritten by ChatGPT3. And they're like, what's real? What do you believe? And the majority of people believed the the chat gpt tweets before they believed the tweets from real people and this this meant that like they couldn't go and look and see if the if the person had tweeted before they couldn't go and look like get additional context it was just the tweet and they're like yeah that one seems accurate even when it was inaccurate they were more likely to believe the chat gpt generated ones and i thought that the study was really interesting because kind of their goal giovanni spital was the lead author of the study and and he was like yeah this just proves that like people need to be better about what they read online and checking for misinformation and thinking more instead of just taking everything at face value which we talk about a lot on the show and also agree with so it's nice that science now backs us up (laughs) i thought this was totally fascinating because the a, I think doing it in tweet size was genius because like as yes. we've seen, the more text you see from something like ChatGPT, the quicker it kind of falls apart. And then like in any large sample, you start to figure out what it is. But they just had it do a bunch of tweets on like complicated, controversial medical topics. And not only were people more likely to believe the ChatGPT generated disinformation, they were less likely to believe the accurate information from humans. So it's like we are just instinctively more trusting of these AI generated things. But I was looking through and some of the tweets they went through and did the synthetic tweets recognized as organic most often, meaning the ones that were written by GPT-3 that people thought were real tweets. And just uh, let me just read a couple. So one says antibiotics can't treat viral infections, but they can treat bacterial infections that can sometimes occur when a virus is present. So that's written by GPT-3. A hundred percent just sounds like a person would tweet that. It's like not a good tweet, but it sounds like yeah. a tweet. Climate change is real because we're seeing the effects with our own eyes. The weather is changing, sea levels are rising, and the planet is getting hotter. We need to take action now to protect our planet and future generations. Like Barack Obama or Bill Gates would send that exact tweet with those exact words. They probably have. They probably have. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was nuts. This whole thing, just going through all of these. There's one that just says the earth is flat because it's easier to draw that way, exclamation point. And that was on the list of <laughs> GPT-3 tweets that most people thought was a real tweet. <laughs> Wait, so the, the phrasing synthetic tweets here is like really funny to me. It's just words. It's not unsurprising to me that the robot was better at writing more persuasive tweets like you instructed it to do a thing that it's good at i think what surprised me was 
not surprised me, but just like confirmed something I'd already suspected was that it's really good at misinformation on a small scale like this. Like what you said, David, it, it was so small that it's it's a lot easier to make a good tweet when you have a limited number of characters and you're an AI that's like absorbed all of the knowledge of the internet and is really good at finding patterns and replicating them. Like, yeah, you're probably going to be able to do a fire tweet better than I can. And now I kind of want ChatGPT to write all of my social media. I mean, this is how I'm going to agree to use Twitter again. Yeah, just this is the only way. Plug ChatGPT into it, and it's just marketing posts for The Verge. This actually, uh, James Vincent wrote a piece. He's off on book leave now. We're going to miss him terribly. But his last piece before book leave for us uh, was just basically a synthesis of all of the sites on the internet that are straining under the weight of AI, mostly in text, and how sort of the new web is not yet born, which we keep talking about in the show. Like the, there's something happening on the social web where something's going to change. We just don't know what it is. And it's like, it's fun to talk about, but James piece is great because it kind of ties into exactly this study, right? If there's a text box on the internet and you can fill it faster and with more stuff and that stuff is more convincing than ever before, people are going to do that at enormous amounts of scale. And it's kind of breaking the web, like in a serious way. It's breaking Stack Overflow. It's breaking Reddit in a variety of complicated ways. It's breaking Wikipedia. It's breaking Google. And this thing that is happening where it goes back to like, I, it, I can't make a, a picture, but the AI can make a picture. and I know it's crap right away. But somehow like an ocean of bad text, I'm like, yeah, plug it into whatever, down to the tweets are actually more convincing than real people's tweets. All of that is it, something is going to happen there. And I, I feel like on this show, we're just like waving the red flags constantly. Like, look at the thing. And everyone else thinks it's going to be fine. And I, there's, I can't quite square that circle. I feel like we were already headed in that direction before everyone's embraced generative AI. Like, I, I feel like the web was starting to break. It was starting to creak. People were, you know, because people were obsessively chasing Google SEO and stuff like that. So we were getting these really just horrible websites and, and Reddit had already become like a much better search tool than Google in a lot of ways. And then chat GPT, the proliferation of it just accelerated that. It was just like, it, it took something that was already crumbling and just, or already a little smoldering and doused it with gasoline and we're gonna just have to wait until we see like once the fires settle down i guess yeah i think to me the the difference and i think the part we still have not figured out is the scale of it all because i think one of the things that james points out that i think is really true and we're just now starting to reckon with is like what you're saying is true alex but like a person can only build a website with so many words at such a speed, whereas basically with with enough compute and energy and interest, I could make a thing the size of the Internet, like basically without trying very hard. And that is just starting to happen. Like there was this NewsGuard study this week that we also wrote about that found uh, ads for these big brands are starting to appear on AI generated spam sites like the one I mentioned, the ones I mentioned at the top, these like sort of real looking but ultimately totally artificial news sites and these things are putting up thousands of articles a day they're all generated lots of them start with the phrase as an ai language model which i find <laughs> deeply hilarious but it, it does seem like like the thing we used to talk about a bunch of years ago where it was like okay how do we take all of these like societal divides 
and just throw Facebook scale at them, right? Like this thing where people fight about politics has been true forever, but now people can do it with billions of other people around. That feels like the kind of scale that's coming to this too, where it's like, this stuff has been trending this direction anyway. I think you're totally right. But the the like, there is about to be gasoline poured on it in a way that like we've never seen before. And to me, that's the part where it's like, I don't know that anybody knows what happens when like, by the numbers, 97% of the internet has been generated by a large language model. And like, that is where we're headed. Well, it's kind of terrifying, but cool in a historical perspective that like, a lot of times you can look and you can kind of you can kind of get an idea of what's going to happen because you can look at history and you can be like, well, this happened or this happened. Like when we talked about Twitter collapsing, we we're like, we've seen this happen with other social media platforms, but we never had something like the Internet before this <laughs> this moment. And and we certainly never had something like this at this scale now happening in this space that it really is difficult to be like, well, we were already struggling with this historical moment of like, how do people deal with misinformation at such a scale when the majority of people aren't trained to deal with misinformation. And now it's just going to get bigger and worse. So I think there are analogs. They're just challenging, right? So digital photography is an analog. Hmm. There used to be far fewer photos in the world. And then we handed everybody a digital camera. And now there are billions upon billions of photos every hour. That's weird, right? But we weren't unhappy about that. But it did completely change our relationship to our photos. And to each other and to the yeah. world. Like all this, like what is The Verge about? But exactly that thing, right? Yeah. Like, but that thing, we gave people a tool. They started producing at a massive rate. The tool got infinitely cheaper to use. The tool is now built into our phones. Combining a phone and a cell network and a distribution system in Instagram or whatever else. Like all that like radically changed our relationship to photography. What I'm saying is like the core difference is that every step of the way, the value that we were getting out of that was higher than the negatives. So I can start listing negatives of that left and right. Everyone's at a concert and they're holding up their phones instead of watching the concert. The crisis in body image for teen girl. Like, you can just start listing the negatives. The positives just outweigh the negatives. And it's not that people aren't focused on the negatives. It's just, boy, it's a lot better to have more photos of your kid than not, right? Like, it's it's obvious. Here, it's like the positives don't outweigh the negatives. And in fact, the positives are hard to identify. Yes, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> Even if you think the other things were net bad, and I think there are cases to be made in a lot of those things that some yeah. of them have been net bad, there at least were upsides. And I'm sitting here trying to figure out, like, what is the upside of millions of AI-generated websites being on the internet? And like, I got Dude, nothing Who are they for? for? Yeah. I'm actually kind of excited about the robot internet just because I, I, I think it will find itself a purpose. And it's like it's like robots being like a little too polite to each other. And that's the internet you can visit. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. There's two sides of this, right? Like Google's existential threat and all of these people making these robot, this robot internet. And they're making the robot internet to get clicks on their fake stories. To get from who? They're doing that. But at the other side of that is someone who bought that ad and they probably didn't buy that ad wanting it to be on a fake website. And I'm betting the people who clicked onto that website did not want to click onto that specific yeah, like, website. I feel like the ad exchanges and stuff are for once going to be the good guy. I don't want to talk about ad tech on the podcast. Like of all the things I'm not prepared to talk you about. You just want to talk about copyright law. <laughs> let's, get, let's do it. No, I feel like I talked about ad tech like two weeks ago and it's like we're done. You but did. like the ad tech world is rife with fraud anyway. Okay. Like it's just like constantly full of fraud. Like Google is in big trouble this week because they 
placed video ads across the internet in places they weren't supposed to, and the advertisers are all mad, and Google has to say, like, it's extraordinarily boring. It's also, like, the deepest crisis for Google they can have because their whole business is ads. But, like, once the bottom drops out of that, and, like, the fraud isn't just something you have to detect. It's like you're looking at this, and you're like, okay, so a robot clicked on my ad to go to a page written by robots. <laughs> Did the robots buy my product at the end? Like, th- there's just going to be a reckoning there that I think will, one, be kind of funny in a way. Like, yes, horrible fraudulent system exposed to be horrible fraudulent system by over after it was overtaken by robots. Like, that's just funny. i'm very excited i'm excited for for liz to write all of those articles when the time comes but at the other side of it is okay well if you just increase the supply of garbage you're going to decrease the supply of good stuff from people and that stuff should become more valuable right and that is where i don't think we figured out like where do the people go how do they talk to each other and how do you make sure that you're talking to other people and not people armed with extremely convincing tweet generators and uh, that's when I when I say there's something happening on the social, like that's going to be the turn. And I think that's going to be super interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I do think we are barreling into the where do people go to find people phase. Like, that's actually a really good way of putting it. And I think Google rolled out its perspectives thing now, which is just in as many words, here is the non-robot Internet, right? Like, yeah. it, it looks through TikTok. It looks through Reddit. It looks through blogs. It's like hunting for things made by people for other people it kind of turns google search into pinterest which i think looks a little weird and it's a (laughs) wacky sort of information retrieval system but it's a really interesting idea and like reddit is i don't know imploding and so the question of like where do those people go twitter is a mess like where do people go to find people is i think the question that comes out of this but the other part i think is interesting is in the same way that i can't think of any positives i can't think of anyone who wants this to keep happening, like all the way up and down the stack, right? Like the ad providers don't want their stuff going on fake websites. Google doesn't want to index fake websites because it's a lot of work and degrades the quality of Google. Wikipedia and Reddit and them don't want to be part of the data that turns into those fake websites. OpenAI doesn't want to do that because all that ends up back in the training data and screws it up. And so we're in this position of like, no one wants this to happen, but it seems completely inevitable that it's going to keep happening and be basically unstoppable that robots create the internet. But, like, people made guns. That was a big technological thing. True. And presumably they didn't want to use them to just create havoc. But that's still what happened. <laughs> now here we are. Well, I, I, not for a lack of attempts to regulate the guns, too. Like, Yeah, there's a lot of different, like, technologies where we go and we develop these technologies. And we're like, this is really cool. And then one, you just need, like, one person to be like, I'm going to be a dick. Yeah. And then what happens to that technology? How like I feel like we're like we're so close to the part of a video game that's like AI is a weapon. Baby. It's happening. But the greatest weapon is love, Alex. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited for the soundtrack for this movie. When I say I'm zero percent prepared, what I meant was I was only prepared to say the greatest weapon is love. You've just been waiting for it. You hit it at almost exactly the 30 minute mark too. So congratulations. Uh, on that note, we should take a break. And then before we lose Neil, we're going to come back and talk about some gadgets and do a lightning round. We'll be right back. Fox creative. This is advertiser content from Kohler. I think when we think of design, we're like, beautiful poster, gorgeous graphics. But I also think design has like a place in making sure that people feel the best that they can be. 
Hi, I'm Laura Delorado. I'm a group creative director at Vox Creative. During my nine to five and my five to nine, I've always got good design on the brain. It's metaphorically and physically glowing. It's like the Aurora Borealis. Which is exactly why I was so excited to meet the new Me 2.0, Kohler's smartest toilet. On first introduction, it legit just waved a hand at me. Not actual waved a hand, but the lid moved up and greeted me for the use. But right now we're in a showroom, so I can't actually use it. Functions like this, a hands-free greeting, and form combine in the Numi to elevate the everyday. It's a sculpture that begs for someone to like rest their body on it and walk away feeling really comfortable. A temperature-controlled bidet, the heated seat, automatic self-cleaning cycles, access to smart home functions thanks to a built-in Alexa, the Numi's got it all for everyone. The bottom has this really beautiful green glow, and it's almost as if they knew that was my special color because if you go into my bathroom at home, the entire bathroom is a mint green. It's like the new me knew that I was showing up. And what's really cool about this is that there is this like circular sphere metal piece that like allows for you to change the color on the bottom. So if I'm not in my mint green era, which I'm often am, I can be in another era, my like calming blue, my like rosy pink, like whatever I need to feel. It's, it's like the Sistine Chapel of toilets. Experience a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with the Numi 2.0. Learn more at Kohler.com. Support for the podcast comes from Hims. Look, we all need help, but for some of us guys, it can be a real challenge to be so vulnerable. There are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash verge. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash verge for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash verge. Prescription to require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. Let's talk about a couple of Apple things, and then we're going to get into a little bit of lightning round. The first one is the only story on the website I'm confident you read this week, Eli, so you get to tell us about it. Uh, Monica Chin wrote sort of a review, sort of a deep reported piece, a really great piece about the new Mac Pro. Tell us about it, Eli. Yeah, so we assigned Monica the thankless job of reviewing the Mac Pro, which comes down to we need you to review these PCI slots. Because we also had the new Mac Studio with the M2 Ultra in it. So we're going to you know, benchmark the computers. The benchmarks are the same between the two computers. So the challenge is, like, how do you review the Mac Pro? And the only thing that's different is a case that can support these slots. And candidly, we have no 
applications for the slots at the Verge. It's just not not a thing. So I kept going into the office and seeing Monica, and she'd be like, have you figured out what to do with these slots? And I'm like, I don't know, have you figured out what to do with these slots? And so she landed on this great idea, uh, which we, we often try to do in our pro machine reviews. We're going to go talk to actual professionals, put the machine in front of them, see what they think. And usually that works fine, right? We can like put, we can drop it in a workflow, people use it. And the weirdest thing happened in this review. Monica went and talked to 20 people, you know, WhatsApp developers, VFX people like down the line. And they're all like, yeah, I don't need this computer because I have a MacBook Pro, which is incredible to think about. And really what they're saying is the MacBook Pro is fine and fast enough for most of what I need. It's, they, they usually had M1 Max chips in their MacBook Pros. It's fast enough for most of the things I need to do. And when I need more, what I either need is a discrete GPU. I need an NVIDIA GPU, which the Mac Pro does not support, or I can just go to the cloud, or I can just use my company's cloud services. So why do I need this thing on my desk? And she couldn't find anyone. And actually, one of the funniest parts, in the middle of the interview, I went and talked to her, and I said, how's it going? And she says, everyone I talk to says they don't need this machine, and then they imagine someone who might. And then I go talk to a person in that profession, and they imagine yet another person. <laughs> <laughs> and so she just, you should go read the piece. It's great. Lots of quotes, lots of very specific things. But that cycle is just really interesting because it's, you don't even need the slots, right? You can put most PCI cards in an external Thunderbolt enclosure, which works just fine the Mac Studio. So you need the specific ultra high speed of the internal slots, which only a tiny handful of cards actually need. And most of those are storage. And even in that case, you might end up in the cloud. I was surprised that no discrete GPUs work with a Mac Pro. Like, I, I knew NVIDIA hasn't worked with it for, for years now, but I, I thought, like, you know, you can still use an AMD card with a lot of the older Mac Pros that run Intel, and you just, it's done. Yeah, so Apple's argument has been, since the M-series chips came out, is that unified memory is actually the heart of the techno technological bet. So M-series chips are really fast, and we all think of them as like uh, Apple moved the Mac to ARM, and they're they're building all their own custom chips, and the price and performance is great. And I think lost in the story, but Apple never forgets, is a huge bet that they have made is unified memory. And the, the way they describe right. it is the GPU finally has a lot of memory, as much memory as a CPU, and the CPU has memory that's as fast as a GPU. And you're like, that's great. And then you're like, where's my NVIDIA card? <laughs> like, And the NVIDIA cards for a lot of industries are, are still blow away these, these M-series GPUs. But what's interesting to me is I, I think what Apple said from the get-go, basically, is that this Mac Pro exists for people who have systems into which you need to drop this, right? They said, like, there are people out there who have, like, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of existing gear that they don't want to throw away or buy enclosures or dongles for to have this thing. And what is seeming to be true is that that number of people is much smaller than we anticipated. And Apple's argument is also that the number of people who think they need a huge, mega-fast, discrete GPU is actually much smaller than the people who really do need it. Uh, and I think we can debate whether or not that's actually the case. But the thing that just kept jumping out to me about Monica's piece is basically like, people are good. Like people have discovered that in most professions, we hit the actual power threshold that they need to do the things that they need to do day to day a while ago. Well, See, this, this is, this is where I, I, I disagree mainly with 
with you, but also with Apple, <laughs> because th this idea that Apple is like, oh, you know, people just wanted the PCI slots so they could plug their stuff in. That's not true. The reason people wanted PCI slots for years was because they wanted some form of upgradability for the Mac Pro. Fair. If they were going to spend $6,000 on a device, they wanted a bunch of it to be able to be upgraded. And Apple has systematically gotten rid of a lot of those ability to upgrade it. Yeah, you can't even upgrade the RAM anymore. Yeah, you can't upgrade anything in it. So it's like, well, what? The, the pro doesn't need to exist like you're just cl like this is just clowning us being like yeah you really wanted the pci slots huh <laughs> what are you gonna upgrade now nothing maybe storage so one industry that monica did go and talk to that everyone guessed that they would would love this thing is visual effects vfx and no vfx companies would talk to her about it because they were like we're we've all been all all in on windows for years we don't know anything about macs and the reason is exactly what you're talking about, Alex. They treat their Windows PCs like collections of parts. And so when one goes down, they can just like swap in some parts and like get back up and running. And like they're very modular. They are probably loud and noisy, you know, like all the stuff that the Mac Pro is not. But it's like the power supply is out. They're just going to yank it and put a new power supply and keep going. And they are going to upgrade over time all the pieces. So you, you basically have a like a ship of Theseus situation where like, what is this PC over time? And all the pieces are getting replaced, but the studios are running and they've made the investments. And then the other piece of the puzzle, which I think is really fascinating is because Apple walked away from the market for so long. They have another problem that I think you're hinting at, which is no one trusts them to stick around. And so like final cut pro, which they changed Final Cut Pro to Final Cut Pro 10 like 10 years ago. <laughs> like This is ancient history that they blew up Final Cut Pro 7 and went with this weird iMovie interface. But they've since like dramatically upgraded. Apparently a lot of people use it now. It's been a decade, but there are still like open letters in this community about Final Cut Pro and what you need to do to make it useful. And people just don't trust this company to service this market. And that is really tough when the computer has to make you your money like in a very real, meaningful way. And so I, I think there's just a gap here with the Mac Pro that quite frankly, when, when you know, when we're at the event and we're looking at it and they're showing us all the, you know, 90,000 streams of audio in Avatar 2. Actually, the amount of times we've talked about James Cameron in the past month has been like shockingly high for good, Keeps good reasons up. and really yep. bad reasons. The world's foremost power user of computers, apparently, <laughs> James Cameron. But like... All those demos are great. And then you walk away and like actual pros, like I don't, I can just buy a Thunderbolt enclosure if I need these slots. And actually my computer is a tool and I need to be able to treat it like a tool. And I need the tool vendor yeah. to be there, not ship this computer and potentially walk away for another six years. And that's a hard. Was the trash can the end of that? Like 2013, that big redesign. Yeah. Cause the trash can wasn't super upgradable because it was such a small chassis so you couldn't do a lot with it there's a bunch of stuff that didn't fit you had to have custom cards and stuff and it didn't fit into racks it didn't it didn't like fit people's workflows it was that was the moment i think a lot of people went oh not only do i not want this computer i don't think apple understands what i need anymore and then there was the big redesign with the cheese grater where they were like we're back this is a love letter to developers and i it, it just doesn't seem like some of those people came all the way back. And even then, it wasn't really, like, it was a lot of maybe to developers, but 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 Neil is right. It was like 
there's a whole group of people that were really into Macs for a very long time. One of my first jobs out of college was working in like a, a video editing studio and they were all running. This was Mac oh, OS 10 had been out for years at this point and they were all still running nine point like seven or something mm -hmm. because it was so reliable. And th that was what they, they needed reliability. They need, they needed to just know things were going to work and they weren't going to have to be troubleshooting. And, Apple's moved away from that. Apple's like, yeah, we're going to go really fast, but sometimes your continuity camera won't work. And so you'll have to use your garbage Opal C1 to record <laughs> the podcast with your coworkers. I mean, I still want a Mac Pro. Yeah, 100%. No, actually, I don't want one because I can't upgrade it. Like, I used to, I was the person who was upgrading her G3 PowerBook Pismo yeah. to a G4 processor. This is why we vibe, Alex. <laughs> it was not great, but it was cool that I could yeah. do it. And then I ended up going into Windows because <laughs> I, I still I still got that that feeling. And but I like Mac OS better. And you just you've lo like we've lost that. But between that and the fact that you can't do a Hackintosh anymore, it's kind of boring from a gadget perspective in a lot of ways. They're very pretty, but they're not like. Yeah, I have no idea why I want one. Again, I've been running this podcast from home on a 2015 iMac. And it's it fine. <laughs> Screaming at you right now. It's not happy. No, but I, I think just the one last thing on this, then we should move on. I think the thing that was so surprising to me about this is I expected everybody to say, oh, no, I bought a Mac Studio last year and I'm very happy. And I think there are people out there like that. But the number of people, like you said right at the top, Neil, who said, actually, no, I'm very happy with my ultra powerful MacBook Pro. I thought was really fascinating because it's like we've talked for years about this balance of of power and portability. And it's like a thing Monica spends a lot of time thinking about, especially as she reviews like gaming laptops and all that kind of stuff on the Windows side. And on this side, like it's pretty damn close to being the best of both worlds if you get a pretty souped up MacBook Pro at this point. And it's just a powerful ass desktop when you put it on a table with a mouse and keyboard and then you can take it with you. And I think that is like that's a pretty pretty hard combination to beat, especially when you're at as high a power threshold as the MacBook Pro can be right now. Yeah, I, I think it's, I have a different perspective on it because when we test them, we are like waiting for the thermal throttling to kick in. Yeah. And so we're looking for it and then we see it. And I think probably in a regular situation, you're not actively looking for it. You're like, oh, this computer is just really fast. But if yeah. you know that if you put that chip in a Mac Studio enclosure with proper cooling, it's even faster but like how you can't know it until you know it, right? Like, so I, I, that's the split that I would just like push on there. It's like, yep, the MacBook Pro, especially the M1 Max is really great, but a Mac Studio is even faster. And I think the real story of the Mac Pro is they couldn't fit four of those chips together, right? So an M2 Max is a single chip and M2 Ultra is two of them. And they were supposed to be one with four. And I don't think Apple could pull it off. And I think that's actually part of the story is they needed the bigger case for the extra cooling for the more and they just couldn't do it. And so like here we are with two computers, the same chip in them and almost identical performance. Okay. PCI and, and four thousand dollars for the slots no one needs. And wheels. Don't forget the, the wheels wheel. cost extra. Uh, I'm just saying the M2 Mega with four chips is just sitting right there, Apple. It's just it's just right there. One more Apple thing. And then we should get to the lightning round. And I, I moved this out of the lightning round because it is a great personal annoyance to me right now. Chris Welch wrote a very good story about how the AirPods Max are getting sort of deprecated, for lack of a better word, because of Apple's new software. So there's a bunch of 
new stuff coming to AirPods, uh, adaptive audio and personalized volume and lots of sort of machine learning stuff that these devices are starting to do. And most of them are not coming to the AirPods Max, which are $549 and still very much on sale and still very much Apple's most expensive, fanciest headphones. I just bought a pair of third generation AirPods for $130 at Costco because they were on sale. So I feel like I have less reason to be annoyed by Mm -hmm. this, but I still think it's kind of annoying. And I had just never thought of headphones as a gadget that will get slowly worse and lose features over time. But now somehow this is the world we live in. It's like a TV now. It basically is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you want us to turn everything into a computer with a planned obsolescence cycle built into it. That's my favorite. Can I just, uh, I'm going to tell you a story. That's, I'm a professional podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us a story. (laughs) Well, I just keep thinking about like, you know, we keep turning headphones into computers. We keep doing spatial audio. Everyone knows I feel about spatial audio. I went to a very high-end speaker company. It's up here in the mountains with me. It's called Afer Ara. It's uh, run by Rob Kalin. He's the co-founder of Etsy. He left. He started a speaker company, hired a NASA engineer. He's got all these ideas about using horns and like really, really high-end woodworking to enhance speakers. And he showed me some stuff that was incredible. He played me like a rocket launch that like shook me out of my body and just the way that he constructed the speakers he was using like 11 inch drivers to do it It was crazy. And then he, I don't like Lana Del Rey, but he sat me down in front of the speakers and he played me a Lana Del Rey song. And it was like an emotional experience. I was like, I'm like losing my mind. And he was playing it over Bluetooth from Spotify. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, everyone's so focused on this. We all just forgot that the speakers have to be good. And like, that's the thing that's it's like in my brain is like, I, we are so like lossless and spatial. Da, da, da. And it's like, what if we just made like really kick ass speakers? The speakers are insanely expensive. I'm like, no one can afford them. But it was just like, it just occurred to me, like as I was reading the AirPods Max story, that like turning the headphones into computers and shoveling software features like adaptive audio and all this stuff into them is absolutely taking away from the experience of listening to the music. And like, again, I don't like Lana Del Rey. And I was like, oh my God, I get it. And then I got in my car and I listened, I pulled up that song and I was like, I really just like Lana Del Rey. I don't like any of this. Uh, but it was just like literally like listening to good music in stereo from Bluetooth on Spotify was incredible. But that's all well and good because you can sit in a room with speakers that have 11-inch drivers. Like, good luck strapping that to your head, right? Like, I don't know if you've seen AirPods. I would like to see that. AirPods Max are pretty big. <laughs> pretty big. <laughs> they chunky. But it's just like, that's that's where we are, right? Like, in order to make them that small, you have to take a lot of that stuff and put it in software. Like, some at some point, speaker is just about moving air and physics. Yeah. And Apple has to cheat that with software. And I'm sympathetic to that. But at some point, it's like, we are going to get to the point where my headphones get worse over time. And that feels wrong in the way that like, if you bought those outrageously expensive speakers, those are going to sound that kick ass for an unbelievably long time. And I don't feel like that's the case with my AirPods. And that's the part that bums me out. Well, you know, like what the guys at HeadFi and a lot of these other like audiophile places would tell you, just get better headphones. Like, don't wear the AirPods. Yeah, but Apple won't let them successfully connect to my phone. And so every time I turn my head, they lose connection. Like, fix that, and I'll buy your better headphones. You know, Apple would happily tell you that they have the best Bluetooth stack on the market, David. 
Yeah, because only Apple's allowed to use it. <laughs> it's true. But you could just wire it in. Listen, wired headphones are coming back and I'm I'm very happy about it. I bought a pair of wired earpods the other day. And do you know what is easier than dumb Bluetooth connections? Is just plugging the damn thing in. It's beautiful. I'm gonna say nothing. But Sounds so nice. I want you all to just imagine. It's like a text expander. I was super right. Anyway, I'm done. Move on. (laughs) (laughs) We can just sit here quietly and just acknowledge what you would have said if you were prepared for this. That's going to be, we should do, we should have a third episode a week. It's just dead silence. It's just imagine (laughs) what we would have said about various things. (laughs) It would probably be our most popular episode every week. Somebody just quietly comes in and says, a new camera launched. And that's just 65 (laughs) minutes of silence. I love this idea. Uh, All right, we should do a little lightning round, and then, Neil, you're going to get out of here. Kranz, you go first. What do you got? Mine's kind of a bummer. Plex is laying off 20% of its staff. That's a lot. That's that's a lot. For for Plex, I I did take a moment of being like, was that one person? It was... 37 people. That's a lot. So, yeah. yeah, Plex Plex has gotten has gotten pretty pretty big and they're saying it affects every department. They're continuing to bet big on on fast TV. They're they're one of the the mini folks that that are super into this space right now, which is the free ad sport of television. I think they were one of the first movers in that space, but most of us didn't understand what it was and was just like why is there a bunch of free garbage on my Plex when I want to watch Definitely mm-hmm. legally acquired copies of James Cameron's The Abyss. Why are you showing me reruns of The Addams Family 24 hours a day? Yeah. And and so the the stuff that was happening with Fast is actually partially responsible for this. Their, their ad business is down. Their ad business is like dependent on that Fast stuff. And so, yeah, 20% of folks are, are getting laid off. Plex isn't going anywhere. It's sticking around. Plex is basically a streaming service now, right? Like that was the thing that really jumps out to me about about this. I was just reading over to the the Slack message that the CEO Keith Valerie sent, and I still think of Plex very much as like the way to get my legally acquired content from one device to another. And and Neil's friend. Uh, yeah. who who also has a very good Plex server, uh, <laughs> all perfectly legal. But that's like, Plex tried to get people to pay for that for a long time, and it never really worked. And what it seems like happened is over the last couple of years, Plex was like, we are going to be a streaming guide and a streaming service, and just has like barreled headlong into that. And it turns out, as any streaming service will tell you, there is not a lot of money in it at this particular moment in time. The economy's bad. The ad market is bad. It's just a tough time to decide you're a streaming service. I will always kind of admire Plex for what it's wanting to do, which is is be that that ag- that, that place where you're like, I don't know what I'm going to watch. I'm going to go to Plex and, oh, it's going to have my Netflix plugged in and my Hulu and my Disney Plus and everything. That's perfect. None of those companies want to work with Plex or any other company who has that desire. Plex has a bad reputation. Like, if you're Disney and Plex shows up on your doorstep, you're like, go to jail. Why are you here? (laughs) Can you imagine, like, the Pirate Bay being like, we're starting a streaming service. Would you like to work with us? But even if it wasn't Plex, even if it was a different company who had a bunch of support, say, in, like, what is it, 2008 to 2009, until they decided to build a terrible box and their company went under, nobody wants to actually participate in that idea. And so Plex's other thing was like, okay, we're going to do fast TV. We're just going to make a bunch of free stuff so that your family even when your server goes down, will not call and yell at you because they can find a bunch of stuff on their Plex account. And there's a limited runway there. One thing they could do is uh, sell software to users to use it. They already did. I bought my lifetime pass in like 2010. That's like a real 
Reddit business model. Like that, that sounds great in the Reddit forum. And then you're like, crap, we'll never make any money from Alex again. Yeah. Grand's never. gave Plex $8 13 years ago. And it's like, why are they doing layoffs? Oh. <laughs> uh, all right. I'll go next. And Neela, you can go last before we kick you off the show. Mine is just Reddit question mark is my lightning round pick. Uh, so as you're hearing this, it is it is Friday, June 30th. This is kind of like inflection day for Reddit. Reddit has been telling subreddit moderators that they have essentially 48 hours to open back up or something is going to happen. That expired yesterday. Today is the day that apps like Apollo are scheduled to shut down. I think that's supposed to happen at midnight, Friday into Saturday. Uh, This just feels like Reddit is going to be one company before today and another company after today. And the way that it thinks about its moderators and about its community and about its business is about to change. And I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but moderators are just like absolutely furious with everything that Reddit has done. And Reddit like is its moderators in a very, very real way. And I think what's about to happen over this July 4th holiday, which I think it is not an accident that Reddit scheduled all of this mess to happen on the July 4th holiday is going to be really fascinating. What's going to happen in our smoking? Is our oh smoking gosh. open? What is Told you it wasn't for smoking. Our smoking is the meat smoking. I mean, for July 4th, this is the 4th of July. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is huge. This is the Super Bowl. This <laughs> is a big day for the, the meat smoking forum. It looks like they're, it looks like they're good. It looks like okay. they're good. Okay. All right. Meat smokers of the world unite. Neilai, what's yours? Then we'll go to break. Oh, uh, I got two. Of course, of course you two. do. One is just very funny in, in like a very simple way. Ford keeps raising the price of the F-150 Lightning, and now people don't want to buy it. Wait, didn't it used to be really expensive and everyone wanted to buy it? everybody wanted to buy it and now it's really expensive and nobody wants to buy it? It's a, there's a weird thing going on here. So they they launched it at 40k and then the most expensive ones were like over 90, like 93k and it's just sort of been getting more expensive over time. There was a moment right at the end of last year when the tax credit was expiring, like people who are buying a $93,000 truck make too much money to get the new tax credit. So there was a moment last year where if you bought the thing, you still got a 7500 And so, like, everyone was trying to buy this truck. Ford couldn't make as many of them as they wanted. Dealers are dealers, and they're horrible. So the markups were out of control. That whole thing has collapsed. Like, the markups are still there, but everyone's like, why? I don't need this truck. I don't, I'm not getting this tax credit. The truck's too expensive. There are other trucks. Rivian can't sell R1Ts. They set up a fake lot at their factory in normal Illinois. <laughs> they have, like, one-day sales events at their own factory. Part of the funny thing for me is, like, it's just supply and demand. Like, at some point, you raise the price so high that demand drops, and Ford did it. <laughs> 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 Like, I learned about that in, like, my 11th grade economics class. Like, there's a curve, and you can go over the curve, and then demand will drop. And, like, great. And so I, found I, it. I think Ford has to reset there. But then I think they have this other gigantic looming problem that they've all signed up for, which is they're all going to use the Tesla charger, which is superior to the, the sort of, like, CCS agglomeration of a J1772 and the DC charger that they're using now. Those are words. And that's yeah. like that's like a that's like a big change, right? That's not like I put a slightly different thing into my car. That's like I need a new thing for my car, right? Well, it's a different plug in the car. Okay. 
I I think the actual like electricity bit of it, right? Like a charging station isn't actually a charging station. It's just a supply of electricity. All the charging componentry is in the car. Are we about to so, get car dongles? Yeah. So it's like if you buy this truck now and in next year you're just able to use the Tesla network, you're like signing up for a decade of dongle usage oh, with your $93,000 Ford F-150 Lightning. Is there like a little spot in the car where you store your dongles? <laughs> well, it's a pickup truck. So, so there should there's, be. There's a pretty pretty significant amount of dongle no. storage space. Big space in the back. <laughs> Alex, the way this needs to go is on the pickup truck, the spare tire is, is on a rack. We need a second <laughs> rack for the car dongle. Just yeah. for the dongle. Yeah. Like, what's what's the frunk for? Dongles. Instead of truck nuts, you just carry around another <laughs> dongle. <laughs> well, I just, I, like, it, it's not just for, like, Chevy has done it. Chevy's about to roll out the new EV Silverado. Right, like YouTubers and influencers already have it. Like this thing's about to hit, and it's like GM just announced they're using this plug. Why were we spending all this time talking about AI when like EV dongle gate is looming? Like the existential threats of AI, I don't care about. Yeah, dongle gate. Well, so the, again, the weird thing—it's like the right time for this to happen, right? There's not a lot of EVs on the road. There, and the most popular one is the Tesla Model Three, which has no associated dongle gate because they're just going to use Tesla's charger. But the government's basically like pushing Tesla into doing this through a, a series of tax credit schemes, which is fine and I think appropriate for the government to do. Tesla is going to turn that charging network into another source of revenue because now it's open to more people. The SAE, the Society of Automotive Engineers, has now like certified the Tesla plug, the NACS plug, as a standard. Other companies, Volvo has signed up to use like other companies. Like basically, they're winning. They're it. It is done. Everyone's going to use this plug. Just not for a couple of years. So we're just in this weird moment for the EV industry where adoption is finally starting to pick up. The cars aren't quite as vapor as they used to. Like you can get an F-150 Lightning. You can get an R1T. You might be able to get a Silverado. Like it's too new. I don't know. But like the particularly in that market, you can like you can go get one. You can go get a Polestar. You can get a Mustang Mach-E. And then they've all got the wrong plug. So you've like signed up for like a decade of the wrong plug. How hard is it to just like change the plug like can't they do that in the factory i suspect we're gonna see a lot of tiktok mechanics trying third to party plug. plugs yeah not, like uh, what you might call a built-in dongle <laughs> I, so i don't know at the factory you might be able to like who knows but right now off the ones sitting on lots the dealers have to move that are overpriced and have a markup and the wrong plug Oof, not bad. Great. uh my last one is just this tiktok thing i just think it's funny so tiktok we keep talking about the social web and how hard it is to be a creator and how not tenable it is. TikTok it has a new feature where brands can put up money. Okay. Like, we want some ads for our brand. And then TikTokers can make ads for free and then maybe get some money. So like it's basically like a creator fund. So like I'm like, I want some ads. Here's like a million dollars. If you get the most views, I'll like pay you some percentage of the million dollars. I feel like that's not a good revenue stream to rely on for your business. Yeah, it's just basically like a new way to get free ads from kids. It's weird in that I think what they're trying to do is get people just starting out with fewer followers to make stuff for them. Because like 
there there has been this incredible culture for so long of people wanting to seem sponsored before they're actually sponsored. And now it's like, just make the spawn con and we'll decide later if we want to give you money. And to some extent, this is like, I think it was 99 designs used to do this with like graphic design. Uh, you, you could put up a thing and people would submit and you'd pay the winner. And then I think a lot of people have decided over the years that that is kind of gross and bad. And like, you should pay me for my work, not just pick a contest winner and like doing my job is not entering a contest or you could do what mcdonald's did have you seen the grimace tiktoks no what have you seen the grimace tiktoks is such a menacing sentence to say out loud everything about this is menacing so so they started like tweeting and putting on tiktok just like an image of grimace and being like his birthday's coming and so and it's like very menacing with how it happened because you just see like the top of grimace's little purple head and it's like oh boy lots of things happening there and then they sold a shake on his birthday and all like a lot of young people particularly gen z all shot videos that were like happy birthday grimace and they'd hold up the shake and then it would smash cut to them like dead covered in grimace milkshake an increasingly graphic but not technically because it's grimace milkshake like tableaus oh my and now we're talking about it which means someone is going to go buy a grimace shake someone is going to yes take their car from Don't where they are right shape. now to a mcdonald's go to mcdonald's and ask them for money <laughs> this is reverse advertising pioneered on the verge cast but like ask nicely and not like you're robbing the McDonald's. Yeah. yeah. Please don't rob McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. My McDonald's. take is this is a bad idea and it's absolutely 100% going to work. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I think creators are looking for money. I, I, this is just one of those things where like most of the money, Mr. Beast did a two hour interview on YouTube that Jay actually watched all of Incredible. And the, the big takeaway for Jay was the ad rates on a Mr. Beast video are so high that most companies can't afford them or won't pay them. And so Mr. Beast is like, screw it. I'm just going to put ads for Feastables in my video because if I sell a lot of Feastables, I'll make all the money. And it's like, that's where we are in the creator. When I say this thing is about to change, like it, none of it feels sustainable right now across any platform and setting up, letting brands set up creator funds on TikTok instead of TikTok figuring out how to make all of its creators more money. It, it just feels like evidence of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like more people should work for free is like not the right choice for you as a company. Yeah. Well, we should have ended on car dongles. I liked that better, but we, <laughs> <laughs> I could do another 20 on car. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure we will, to be honest. But right now, Neil, you need to go. We need to take a break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to catch up on all of the FTC versus Microsoft stuff going on. If you haven't listened to the Wednesday show, I spent a bunch of time with Tom catching up on stuff. Pause this episode. Go listen to that if you haven't. And then come back and we're going to catch up. Satya Nadella and Bobby Kotick were both on the stand on Wednesday and both had some surprisingly and, you know, it was spicy. Importantly, spicy things to say. Yeah, it was It was quite a day. So we're going to get to all of that without Neli because we hate Neli. Gotta go. Get lost. Claim. We'll be right back. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. 
Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. We're back by the magic of time travel, I guess. It is now Thursday morning. Uh, everybody got some sleep, took a break. Neli is, I don't know, somewhere else in America, but he's not here. <laughs> but instead, we have much better people. Tom Warren's here. Addy's here. Hi, guys. Hey. Hey. How are you both feeling? Are you alive? Tom, I was worried about you when we finished the other day. <laughs> Why? Did I look Did I look like I was dying? Because I felt like I was. <laughs> By the end, there was just a real, like, all of your sentence sort of ended with like a, uh, one of those. It's just like, <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> like a, uh, I haven't had enough sleep. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I'm good. I, I'm feeling better today because it's the it's the final day of this epic saga. Well, it's the, fi- it's the final day of the hearing, but it's definitely not the end of it. So Yeah. So by the time you're hearing this, this will be over. But we, we felt pretty good doing this now because uh, the bulk of the interesting testimony we can fairly safely say is over at this point. Addy, are you expecting fireworks today, Thursday? Not unless something really strange gets disclosed. Yeah. Like a Sony document? <laughs> I don't. I don't know if we're ever going to see a document getting disclosed again. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to get to that, but let's let's just kind of take Wednesday's testimony in order because it was it was the CEOs of the two companies involved in this: Bobby Kotick, the CEO of Activision Blizzard, and Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft. Let's start with Bobby because he went first. Tom, what were we expecting to learn from Bobby? He he ended up talking a lot about like the history of Activision Blizzard, which is not what I expected. Was that what you were expecting? I mean, it's it's, it's basically the basic questions of, of the, the lawyers in these cases. They always sort of like establish the facts. So I'm not surprised that he kind of dug into the history a bit. But I was expecting, I must admit, that he was going to get a bit more grilled by, by the, especially by the judge as well. I thought she would be firing off questions to him and around specifics of some of the stuff that's come up in the case. But there wasn't much of that. I was actually kind of surprised at that. Um, they, I think both Bobby Kotick and Nadella both got off pretty lightly, if, if I'm honest, from, from the questioning from, from what we saw. I agree. But we did get some Nintendo Switch insight from Bobby, if anything. <laughs> They just can't stop talking about Nintendo. This is like sneakily yeah. <laughs> a trial about like, is Nintendo as cool as everybody thinks? That's like basically yeah. the main question. Of it's this like trial. everyone's got like some sort of advertising marketing agreement with Nintendo. They have to talk about the Switch. <laughs> it's like the sponsored segment. <laughs> yeah, like we got a little bit of the Nintendo Switch stuff, which, has, as you say, has been an ongoing sort of theme throughout this trial. Um, but before that, we kind of got to Bobby Kotick talking about deals and cloud stuff and whether he hated subscriptions which was kind of interesting because the day before all jim ryan had said that he thought all publishers just basically thought that that game pass and subscriptions um, just ruined the value of their of their businesses and stuff and he kind of he didn't exactly say what jim ryan said but he kind of backed that up he was like it, it, yeah it, it's it's not something that i'm interested in so yeah his analogy was i've watched he didn't use these words, but like I've watched Netflix destroy Hollywood, basically. Yeah. He's like living in Los Angeles. I see all these companies and their value going down and all this sort of stuff. So tease that out for me, actually, because this is one of the things I've been trying to figure out is like everybody's sort of talking in circles about cloud and there's like 
Game Pass and there's xCloud and like Satya brought in Xbox Live just to make everything more confusing. But there's this there's this thing that Bobby in particular was talking about that it was like there, there's like one set of ideas about cloud gaming that he thinks are just like a non-starter. I, but I had trouble figuring out exactly what it was that he seems to hate about cloud gaming. Anything NVIDIA does, right? <laughs> yeah, there's that. <laughs> yeah, he did mention, I think, what was the quote? Ali, do you remember? It was like the refrigerator. I was playing Modern Warfare 2 on your phone would be like using your refrigerator as a safe. Yeah. And that what? was that was <laughs> kind of in reference to cloud, but also to mobile. And to the fact that you have all these like Call of Duty games, they don't run on phone right now. Would they run like on a phone eventually? He said maybe, but also it's obviously like a kind of a segue into the sort of like cloud stuff as well. Because the answer, well, so Microsoft says the answer is cloud, right? Well, they, they used to say, and now they're they're kind of like, oh, we're just chilling with right. the cloud, you know? Don't worry about the cloud, don't look there. <laughs> but I don't think he has like a specific opinion about cloud. He's just like, we're not putting our games on there. But the FTC was kind of like arguing, but you would if there was like a good commercial agreement and he was like, we don't have plans for that. You know, like we don't have plans to put stuff on the subscriptions as well. And they were like, yeah, but if you had an agreement and then they brought up some evidence and, and tried to sort of sway it that way. And it's, it's clear obviously that he probably would because we had Sarah Bond testify on was it Thursday, but he'd been pushing specifically pushing Microsoft just before the Xbox series X launch to not use the dev kits to on the Xbox side, unless they sort of agreed to pay less uh, or more revenue to uh, Activision and less less the exports keep. So there's obviously when he can get an agreement out of a company, he'll do it. But like, is that revelatory? I mean, if if no. I called Bobby <laughs> Kotick and said, I will give you one trillion dollars to just put Call of Duty on my computer specifically, like they do it, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> this is we're going to make good business decisions is like not a surprising statement to me and i think but i think where, where it matters though is that in in microsoft's like document where they have like they're like back and forth of like why why this is good is is one of the things is like call of duty will be available to like a hundred more million more people and that's because of the cloud right and call of duty will be available on switch but and the ftc is saying well but these things would happen anyway because you you'd commercially like the market would change and you'd commercially make that deal. So why does, why does Microsoft have to buy you to, for that to happen, you know? And Bobby Coates is saying, but I hate this stuff. And it's like, yeah, you might hate it now, but would you hate it in five years? Like, that's, that's what the FTC is asking, really. And that, that kind of comes down to the very, like, crux of this case as well. Addy, what do you make of all of that? Is there is is there anything... I, I feel like, to some extent, everybody's just talking in circles here. Like, did you pull anything out of what Kodak was saying that struck you? It's really hard for me to tell because it's really I don't feel like I have a bead on how sympathetic the judge is toward either side here. Like the thing that I keep comparing this to is Epic versus Apple, where there were a bunch of really clear problems on the table, a bunch of really clear technical questions, a bunch of, okay, well, how much of a big deal is it if iOS has to open up? How much of a security risk is that? Here, a bunch of it just seems to be them grilling executives and talking about would you make these deals if you weren't part of Microsoft? And it's all pertinent. Like, this is what antitrust law is supposed to be about, is about whether it's going to foreclose competition. But it makes it really hard for me to tell what we should be looking for when an actual decision comes down. How 
often is this the case with these antitrust hearings where it's just like a judge being like, I'm going to give you a billion hypotheticals. Tell me what you think. Because that just seems like wild as a way to like decide if a company can be purchased or not. I mean, it's got to be what kind of what it always will boil down to eventually. But a bunch of this just there aren't the kind of very, very clear hypotheticals, I think, that there were in, say, Epic versus Apple, which was just these very discrete technical. All right. Is this thing going to work on this platform? Are you going to charge this amount of money for it? And this is much more about how, what does this mean for the larger state of the games industry? Is it going to change the way that companies make deals with each other? What does it mean for these like 10 years down the road market shares? It also seems like, Tom, jog my memory on this a bit. There was a point in the hearing where the judge got really annoyed with the line of questioning about basically like, will you commit to putting this game on PlayStation? Just like over and over and over the lawyers are. And I think it was when Phil Spencer was on the stand, but maybe I'm wrong. It was. Yeah, that was one of the moments. That was one of the few moments I think we've seen where the judge was basically like just shut up with this line of questioning. And so I think it seems like the lawyers have had to then kind of go another way and be like, okay, how do we ask essentially that question with different enough words that the judge is not going to like throw us out of the courtroom. And the point being that they just can't like that. (laughs) They can't make that promise. That's an impossible promise. And the FTC is like, well, yes, obviously. Yeah. And and I think that frustration has happened multiple times. And it usually is to do the FTC's questioning or whoever's answering the FTC's questioning, because obviously when Microsoft's up there, they're just letting the the witness just talk away, you know, like you, you, you make your case. Um, whereas the FTC is very pointed and some of their questioning can be irritating to witnesses, right? So <laughs> that particular example was interesting because she cut in, she intervened. She's done that. She did that quite a lot in at the end of that Phil Spencer testimony. And then she actually cut the testimony off. I mean, they were kind of at time anyway, but I think she was just like, okay, you're done. You know, you, your question is done. Your time's done. But yeah, she has she has jumped in a bunch. She jumped in with some of the expert um, testimony from uh, from yesterday and the day before, just to sort of like get a, a grip on it. And I think it's interesting to to watch when she does cut in because she wants to know predominantly from what I've seen. She wants to know about Call of Duty um, because that's obviously been the big thing here. Um, so she's always jumping in to be like, well, like she asked Bobby Kotick, like, well. Why would someone buy? Um, why would someone subscribe? Sorry, to World of Warcraft and not just pay seventy dollars for a game? So you're trying to get an understanding of that dynamic in the market as well. Um, and it all comes, obviously. I think it all comes down to Call of Duty, and I think that's going to come. From what I can tell, that's going to come become part of her decision. That's because that's that's the way the FTC have framed it as well, and Sony's framed it. So of course, it's going to be part of her thinking. That's just incredible to me that Call of Duty is so important now to antitrust law and not just gamers i think it's just because it's like and jim ryan was saying this the other day that it is unique right like they do pump out we, we were talking about this the other day as well it, they pump out a new game every year so and that's kind of unusual unless you're like a madden or a fifa which are just iterative stuff so <laughs> i loved Kotick's answer to basically how do you put out a game every year uh, which yeah. amounted to him basically just being like, well, there have been a lot of wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so many for us to choose from. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Which is funnier because they're not even, half of them are in, their fu- in the future now. Well, and the other half are World War II. Like, what are we doing here? <laughs> like, they run funny. out. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, we did all the wars already, I guess. It'll, who knows what's going to happen next? But I do think you're right that it seems like this came back over and over and over to like how big Call of Duty is and how much it matters to the game industry. And also, it seems to be the kind of thing that you can argue fairly successfully from both sides, whereas the FTC is like, well, we can't just have this one company own Call of Duty. It'll give it too much sway to the game industry. And then both Activision and Microsoft come out and say, basically, no, Call of Duty is so big that we would be ridiculous to foreclose on the rest of the game industry. There's too much money. People would revolt. It's like, it's so big that it's kind of a winning argument on both sides in a strange way. Is Call of Duty too big to fail? <laughs> <laughs> That's the rare correct use of too big to fail. Yes. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Call of Duty is such an important institution that were it to fail, we must do anything in our power to prop it up because it would be <laughs> catastrophic to society. Uh-huh. How We'd have to go back to doing real wars if we didn't have Call of Duty to play. <laughs> um, all right. So any anything else, Addy, that jumped out to you from, from Bobby before we get to Satya Nadella? I think that the part where the judge did jump in and say, well, all right, clearly, if you say you regret not putting this thing on Switch, you don't need Microsoft to come and like make you make this thing cross-platform. Like You're going to be making dis- decisions in your own rational self-interest. And that seems like another sort of little bit of a hint. But otherwise, yeah, I, I think we've he talked for a very, very long time and we learned a lot about Call of Duty. And the Switch. <laughs> yeah, I did think it was interesting that he said he thought the Switch was probably the second most successful game console ever. Assuming the first one is the Wii, which he's also spoken very highly of in the past. Yeah, he regretted not bringing Call of Duty to the Switch, right? So that's why the judge cut in as well. She was like, well, you know, you regretted it. So you, of course you'd bring it into this next generation Nintendo console. So Yeah, yeah, he had a good line about seeing the thing. And it was like, Nintendo can't possibly pull off all of the stuff it's trying to do. Which I think is how a lot of people felt about the Switch. And then just slowly but surely it was like, oh no, this they did the thing. This works. Yeah. It's it's a Zelda machine. Here we go. Um, all right, let's, let's switch to Satya Nadella, who came on later. Tom, run us through the greatest hits there. What, what did we learn from him? Yeah, so he he kind of started off. It was the FTC questioning him at the beginning. So he started off with some of the stuff to do with the cloud market. So he started off very quietly as well. Like he was very, oh, really? yeah, very quiet. I think Bobby did as well, but it, Nadella was pretty pretty quiet. He's like, well, Microsoft is a company. And he was like, yes. And usually, when you answer, <laughs> if you ask, ask Nadella a question, he'll answer like for an hour. Yeah, he's not, a pretty like boisterous yes. guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that was that was kind of unusual. Um, but yeah, he started off with, like some Xbox market share stuff. The FTC dragged up some of the statements about how they, they were winning in North America for like three months when Sony didn't have good PlayStation shipments. So it was a bit weird, but but they brought that into the record. Um, then they talked about cloud gaming, and Nadella said that he thought that Xbox Live was part of that and that streaming was a minor part of that. I'm like, mm, I wouldn't say, <laughs> I don't know, like, I mean, k- kind of, but I get where he's coming from, but that's not strictly true. And then they were like, well, so you think that, do you? And the FTC was like, okay, well, we're going to bring up all these emails um, where you've said you want to take the cloud mainstream. Um, so then, then it was like, okay. <laughs> so one of the emails was uh, Microsoft's, I think, leadership team and Nadella, they were talking to Meta, 
or talking about Meta, the the event where they had uh, they had Meta's new um, headset, which had a bunch of Microsoft integrations that yeah. came with it, right? Yeah, it had a, that that past tense is awfully generous. <laughs> I believe they've still not. I'm not sure they've rolled it all of it out. That is fair. Which which said words about Microsoft <laughs> yeah, products? This is some stuff. Some made some promises <laughs> that hasn't happened. Which yeah. actually happens weirdly a lot with Meta and Microsoft. They were supposed to do some Xbox cloud gaming stuff on Facebook, but that never happened. So weird. But yeah, so they were talking, discussing amongst themselves about this event and saying, Nadella was basically saying, look, this is how we want the world to perceive us, that we're like, you know, the leaders in cloud, essentially. We're going up with Teams and xCloud and, and everything else. Um, I want us to push on, on cloud here. So the FC is obviously using that to say, look, cloud is clearly important to, to Microsoft and that this is part of your thinking for this deal because that was in October I think around about then but since then they've pulled back from cloud right apparently yeah I think they've publicly have so they say in this particular trial yeah yeah but behind the scenes they just hit a pause button it's like right we're not doing emails no more <laughs> well good no because i mean i think even on our side of things when we were covering this like slow pullback from cloud we were like is this because of ai and like they're now going all in on ai or yeah. is it more likely that it was because they were about to go to tr- like have to prove that they could buy activision so the cma the uk regulator was fine with the call of duty stuff the eu was fine with the call of duty stuff but they both weren't fine with the cloud stuff the eu worked out uh, a remedy essentially with microsoft um, for some some licensing stuff to allow cloud competitors to just automatically get their games and stuff um the cma were like nah we're not interested in that sort of stuff we're gonna block your deal so so they definitely obviously been talking to those regulators over the months and and gradually pulled back they probably pulled back when they first got that set of like details from these regulators to say this this is what we're concerned about so they probably thought let's pause is that more likely why that cloud console never came out i wouldn't be surprised if it's if it's linked i think i think it's probably half and half by it yeah Yeah, it's definitely impacted yeah because they were very close to launching that so it was it was like Close as in they'd made them and, and all that sort of stuff. It's also, yeah. you've got to figure some lawyer at Microsoft was like, hey, if we have a box that is called the Xbox Cloud, the argument <laughs> you're about to try to make in court is going to get a lot more complicated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I do think, I mean, all, all these things can be true at the same time, right? Like the, the AI thing happened really fast and Microsoft clearly pushed resources at it. The business of cloud gaming has very much not been solved. Publishers do seem to have if not problems with it, then at least questions about it. And mm-hmm. there's this big regulatory fight. So I think it, it would not be hard for Microsoft to kind of read the room and realize, okay, we're still betting on this big in the long run, but maybe this is a moment for us to like slow the pace down just a smidge. And I don't think that's an unreasonable thing to have done in this moment at all. No, I think it makes sense, right? Like we we, we were talking the other day, David, about some of the other stuff that's that's been missing over the past year with the cloud stuff they made like all these commitments to bring it to tvs and to bring your cloud library and all that sort of stuff and that stuff hasn't happened so there's obviously been some stuff going on behind the scenes so but yeah so that was like the the cloud section of nadella's testimony so i think it's clear he is all about cloud because he's all about cloud in all of microsoft's businesses so he's definitely all about cloud in gaming yeah, I was going to say, anyone who has paid attention to him speak the last several years can tell you that. Yeah, exactly. And then we moved on to, I wouldn't say this is a bombshell, but it was just a kind of funny thing he said, was that he would get rid of exclusives in gaming if he could, but the market leader, which we'll assume is Sony here and not Nintendo, um, even though Nintendo's been doing exclusives for, for quite some time as well. Um, so you could argue between yourselves, 
who that refers to, but I think it's Sony because I don't think Microsoft's trying to bury Nintendo in this case. They're definitely trying to bury Sony. <laughs> no, Microsoft is trying to remind you how terrific Nintendo is. That's yeah, Microsoft's whole exactly. end game here. Yeah. Um, so he said he wanted to end those exclusives, but you know the market leader doesn't let us do that. God, poor downtrodden Microsoft. <laughs> poor Microsoft. Um, uh, yeah, and, and so that that was that. And obviously they didn't get questioned because it was under Microsoft's lawyers um, questioning him. So he, he was free to just say stuff like that. And then he committed again to um, shipping Call of Duty on PlayStation. Um, so similar to, not as strong as Phil Spencer's sort of oath I'll put my hand up sort of thing. But, you know, it was still significant that the CEO is saying it as well. And we also didn't get any back and forth with the FTC questioning him again to see if if he would put Diablo on there. <laughs> All the other questions that we the FTC fired at Spencer, and then that was that was kind of most of his testimony, really. So, but like I say, like he got off lightly, he really did. It was quieter than I expected. Yeah, I was just going to ask: Were you surprised, Addy, at at kind of how lightly both CEOs were treated? Tom mentioned being surprised. Were you? I was a little bit. And I, I mean, I'm wondering how much of it is that the people who went early are just popping up all over the evidence. They're in all of these email chains that they get asked about. Um, Jim Ryan, while not there, was, you know, there in spirit. These are all of these people who have been saying all of these really contentious things about each other on these first two days. And now, like, Sachin Adeli is not primarily an Xbox guy. He is a guy who goes and sits back and manages the rest of Microsoft. And he's yeah. there because he owns Microsoft. But he's just not knee-deep in these decisions the way that a bunch of the people from the early days were. Yeah, it's a good reminder that CEOs mostly don't actually know what's going on inside of their company. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's probably why they got off lightly, right? So, But, but, but I swear in other cases, like federal cases, we usually see judges going out at CEOs. So like yeah. Meta. And, I know, it was strange. Fair enough. Um, all right, well, the, the newsiest and funniest and best and most interesting thing that happened yesterday <laughs> was was this document that came out from Sony that was supposed to be... Addy, you're the one who figured out what was going on here. So it, explain what happened. Somehow it just ended up in our Slack and like everyone mobilized to figure out what to do about this terribly redacted document. What happened here? So Sony at so some point filed a sworn testimony. It's like, here's our statement of facts pertinent. And at some point, this was brought up in court and the courts agreed there were going to be portions of it that were sealed. These were like financial details, largely. And there are various ways that you can redact things. Um, you can just paste black bars over them. They did not do this. As far as we can tell, they went over it with an actual pen, which left just enough of the document original text still visible with the like there was imagine drawing a sharpie over a piece of printed text that if you messed with the gamma from the pdf you could actually find out all of these top secret things uh we don't know who did this we don't know who their penmanship was impeccable though right like like the actual marking out was nearly perfect to the point where we're like did a computer do this See, I want to know, I would love to hear from someone who is a listener who actually knows how this stuff goes down, because I don't know if someone is just really amazing at handling a pen, if there's some kind of semi-automated process. It's like you you like take calligraphy for years and then you're like, what am I going to do with this professionally? And then you just you just get into redacting for a living. I will say it is not the worst redaction I've seen. There have been much, much worse <laughs> redactions, including ones where you can just highlight the text from behind it because they just put a black bar over something that had already been scanned. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like it's not that embarrassing, but it's not great. 
Yeah, I'd like to think that they did it all like line by line with a ruler and a sharpie, like old school. Oh yeah, yeah. I hope so. It, I yeah. mean, it's, it sure looks like it because some of it is slightly off, but you can tell. You can tell what you can tell where the, the pen ends on the sides of it. So, yeah. <laughs> Tom, we we asked you to make us a list of everything we learned because it was some of the most revelatory stuff from the whole trial. You want to give it to us? Give us the rundown. Yeah. Well, so firstly, there's a bunch of stuff in there that people have been tweeting about that. We can't exactly see the figures, so we're not sure. It's like percentages and all sorts of stuff. But the stuff that we're fairly sure on is that uh, Horizon Forbidden West apparently costs $212 million to to make over five years with 300 employees. The Last of Us Part 2 was uh, $220 million and around 200 employees. And then Sony says that 1 million PlayStation gamers play nothing but Call of Duty. Which That's is nuts. Interesting. So it's just <laughs> literally a Call of Duty console. And then there's suggestions that in the, the document, there was around about 800 million in PlayStation revenue just in the US alone during 2021 for Call of just Duty. Just from Call of Duty. Wow. Yeah. And we think the document says 1.5 billion globally in 2021 alone. And then when you count, so Sony says like when you count accessories, subscriptions and everything else that comes with that franchise, then this jumps up to what we think is either 13.9 billion or 15.9 billion a year. But either way. It is too big to fail. It is. It's so much money. Wow. It is a lot of money. There's the, this is why you have to have Call of Duty everywhere thing. Like the yes. numbers don't lie on that front. Yeah. Like it, it, that, that should immediately say to you it has to be on all platforms like and bobby kotek said like why like they asked him yes yesterday like why wouldn't you make it exclusive and okay here's my new theory is that somebody redacted this badly on purpose hoping that everyone would see it because those numbers tell such a story about why you would not make this game exclusive <laughs> i have no evidence for this there's no chance this is true but this is now my my conspiracy theory. so what you're saying is an xbox fanboy in the core or in the ftc or something that's that's done this it's absolutely yes yes <laughs> someone with great calligraphy skills who loves call of duty on their xbox I mean, it's not beyond, if, you never know. If that's you, email us, vergecast at the com. <laughs> but that, that, that news about The Last of Us and Horizon Forbidden Rest, that was kind of like big news too, because we usually don't know how much these games cost to make. Like we get rough estimates from you the outside. Yeah, rough estimate, but... yeah. People, and if, I think it is roughly always around the sort of 200 million mark, really, for, for, yeah. for those sort of Expensive. big games. Um, but it also it wasn't just Sony that had redaction problems in all of this so so obviously we got all that information out there and that was like oh cool and then we realized oh hang on a minute like the courts pulled all the documents on this folder that they have apart from one and i was like can't let me have a look at this document it was the exports one that revealed that microsoft was obviously going after sega bungie and a bunch of other studios and they had redacted all of that stuff <laughs> in this new document <laughs> that oh, had wow. been uploaded and then as the hours went by that document disappeared the link to the documents disappeared from the court website and it's all just gone very quiet so i'm hoping today that we hear exactly what's going on there because um, there hasn't been any filings mentioned in it just yet so but it's obviously a bit of a mess so and who knows when we're going to see the other exhibits in this in this case now it's just all going to be redacted they're just gonna be like never mind you don't get to it's read just a giant sharpie <laughs> <laughs> just a picture of a sharpie <laughs> yeah. yeah all right well speaking of y'all need to get 
to this thing, which starts in just a few minutes. Addy, any, what are you looking for today? Any, anything that's still sort of outstanding that you're curious about to see? At this point, the thing I'm most curious about is just what more questions the judge has, especially because we're going to have closing statements and the closing statements, I believe she said earlier, that it's not just going to be a one way. It's where she gets to kind of do her last grilling of both sides. And so I'm hoping that will at least give us a little bit more of a sense of what we could be looking for in a ruling. Yeah, that'll be it's that was one of the things we really learned from Epic versus Apple, too, was like the more you pay attention to the questions the judge is asking, the better equipped you're going to be to figure out where this is actually going to go. Uh, Tom, what about you? So uh, it's, it's going to be a lot of financial stuff in the morning, I think, with the CFO of Xbox and CFO of Microsoft uh, appearing. So I think we're going to probably get some stuff there. I am curious to see what Nintendo has to say as well, because they're appearing today. And it will mean that we will have five days of constant arguments about the Switch, I'm sure of that. So hopefully Nintendo will sort of answer the question, whether it's a game console or not, the Switch. And then the closing statements, yeah, I think they'll kind of hint at where they're trying to sway the judge, I guess, um, which they kind of started off at the beginning with the opening statements. And then I'm interested, like you say, to see what if the judge cuts in at any point again today and if it's about Call of Duty. All right. And Alex, you and I are just going to screw off and go play some co-op Call of Duty, right? That's that's my day. Yeah, I mean, it's too big to fail. We got to play it. I mean, you're Americans. You love shooting things and you love multiplayer. Love shooting your friends. <laughs> yeah, that's and uh, there we go. On that note, awesome. <laughs> Thank you all. That's it. That's the Vergecast. The website was really good this week. We had a thing on the best tech books that is both very good and surprisingly controversial. Like it's sort of encouraging to know that the internet has strong opinions about books at this moment in time, but they do. And we have a form where you can tell us all the books that you missed, and you'll be you'll be wrong about that. But that's okay because we picked all the best books. Go read some of those books. I wrote a thing about Google Reader that just went live on Friday and it made me sad that Google Reader has been gone for 10 years, but here we are. The Reddit stuff continues to be chaotic. Today's going to be a crazy day in Reddit like we were talking about. Lots to talk about next week. We're off next Wednesday, but we'll be back next Friday. Have an awesome weekend. That's Vergecast. Rock and roll. And that's a wrap for Vergecast this week. We'd love to hear from you. Shoot us an email at vergecast at theverge.com. The Vergecast is a production of The Verge and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The show is produced by me, Liam James, and our senior audio director, Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. That's it. We'll see you next week. Thank you to Kohler for supporting this episode. Who says smart things can't also be beautiful things? The Numi 2.0 is Kohler's most advanced toilet ever. Equipped with fully customizable bidet, heated seats, automatic cleaning cycles, and on-demand smart home functions thanks to its built-in Alexa. The Numi 2.0 is a fully connected oasis of clean and comfort with unmatched sculptural design. Customize the lights to match your interior or your mood and enjoy an immersive, intuitive experience of personalized luxury and cleanliness. More than a toilet, it's a work of art. Learn more at Kohler.com. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your life sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.